Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is literary audio content. This is listened to on a regular basis by more than 126 people in the Philippines. My name is Brad Listy. Hello there. How are you today? How is your worldview how are you feeling? How is your posture? Are you dehydrated? Do you have good energy? Uh, what is happening right now? I'm sitting here in my apartment, in my office, at my desk, and uh, out there in the distance, I can hear a jackhammer. I don't know if you can hear that. You probably cannot hear the jackhammer that I can currently hear. The sound of the jackhammer is faint. It is far away. It is muffled by double pane glass. But rest assured that somewhere out there, Someone in Los Angeles is jackhammering something currently. So that's happening. Otherwise, uh, I'm basically procrastinating a lot these days, or at least for the past couple of days. I've been slow. I've been mentally lethargic. I don't know. I guess it's this time of year. It happens every year, it seems like, in December. I start to slow down. I start to uh, go into a funk of some kind. I'm not even bummed out. I'm just slow. I don't know how else to explain it, but I have this to-do list and it's in my brain, and it's nagging. Uh, it's, it's creating nagging thoughts. 
I need to work on some revisions. I need to write a synopsis. I need to read more books. I need to pour most of my energy into making myself laugh out loud while seated in a casual slouch on a hardback chair in a quiet working space. I need to have better energy and uh, a better attitude. That's what I keep telling myself. I need to meditate or something. I need to have less fear. Like uh, before I I came on the air here, I was sitting in my desk chair and I was trying to get started and I kind of turned to the right and looked out my window and looked up at the sky and suddenly imagined uh, a pterodactyl. I think that's what those dinosaurs were, the flying dinosaurs. I imagined a pterodactyl flying through the palm trees or over the palm trees. I don't know why I just told you that, but that's that's what just happened. I just looked to the right, looked up and imagined a flying dinosaur. And I I imagine that imagining a flying dinosaur might be healthy. I can't believe there were flying. (laughs) I can't believe there were flying dinosaurs. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Salvatore Payne. He is the author of a chapbook called Hashtag Kanye West Saved from Drowning, which was published by Knapp back in October. He's an assistant professor of English and creative writing at the University of Indianapolis, and his debut novel, Last Call in the City of Bridges, is now available from Braddock Avenue Books. So let's get to the conversation. It is a very good and interesting conversation. I greatly enjoyed this one. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Salvatore Payne. I'm in my living room right now, and um, it's kind of the nerdiest place on earth where uh, I've got this old TV from the 80s hooked up, and there are 12 retro video game systems hooked into the TV, so it's just this horrible mess of wires and box plugs and surge protectors, and then there is this huge bookshelf filled with old Nintendo games from the 80s. Um, and my Virtual Boy, which is like an old kind of crappy video game system from the 90s, 
Uh, and that probably that first sentence probably sums up my entire life, basically. <laughs> that right there. So wait, um, so television from <laughs> television from the eighties. We're talking like an old like cathode ray tube television, like a big boxy. Oh yeah. Okay. And so, really big, really ugly. It's a, it's not even a good brand. It's a Sanyo TV, which I don't even think is a real brand. I don't know where I got this TV. Uh, I don't. I can't imagine Sanyo still exists, but, uh, well, but it's working for me right now. I was going to say it's not. A, it's not a bad brand if it's from the '80s and it's still working. It's clearly a. This is. A uh, war, that's true. It's a warhorse. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it works. It's it, you know it turns on. Um, everything looks the the color is fading. So if you have anything that is white in the background, it, it kind of makes everything look white. Um, so other than that small problem, it's it's pretty good. Okay, and that this is in your house. Is this like the main room in your house, or is this some sort of anteroom or, or basement or something? Oh no, you, you come in, and this is the first thing you see <laughs> is <laughs> this whole TV with uh, like this disgusting shelf I got at Goodwill filled with like an Atari and um, even more obscure stuff than that. I've got like a, a, Vic, a Commodore Vic Twenty, which just looks like a big typewriter hooked into the TV, and it's it's just it's horrible. My girlfriend is moving here in about two months, and oh, it's all over. God bless her. That yeah, she actually is okay with all this. God bless her. So she, that is a patient woman. She might have. I, I don't know if I mean. I don't want to like frighten you or anything, but she might have. Uh, she might be bluffing, is what I'm saying. Like things could change rapidly once you guys actually start cohabitating. It could be. I mean, this could all be a ploy for her to steal all of these systems. Is something I've thought about. This is it. A, could be. It could be. It's a stealth intervention, and I don't think that necessarily she's going to tell you that you can't have them anymore. But she's going to request that that they somehow be moved out of uh, co- out of common spaces. You know. I've already prepared myself for that. I've kind of already offered. Uh, I told her like I, I can put them in the basement. Um, and so far, she said, "Oh no, no, it'll be great up there." What a woman! So she's seen it. I know. So I don't know. I, I imagine that might change once her parents walk in or something, and they see <laughs> this disgusting nerd cave that I have built for myself here. So we'll see. Okay, so twelve video game systems. Twelve. And they're all hooked up simultaneously. You don't have to like unplug stuff to get one to work. Like this thing is like a full. I mean, this this is hard to even imagine. I've never heard of somebody having twelve video game systems hooked up to one TV. I, I'm a very sad person. Uh, some of the plugs aren't plugged in because that's dangerous, and I would probably burn down the house. Um, and some of the AV cords aren't in because uh, some of the things are so old that I have to share AV cords. So they've got like five different cords to get it to the TV. So some of them have to be shared, but for the most part, you know, it, it would take about two minutes to hook the things up for the most part. And where does this obsession come from? Like just childhood and you're just, you, you just like it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? This is an unusual level of affinity for video games. Yeah, it's, I, I don't really know how to explain it. Like I grew up playing Nintendo. That was my thing. I got Nintendo Entertainment System on my fifth birthday. It was a huge deal. I still remember it. Uh, I remember all those games. And then about eight years ago, I just kind of wanted to play them again. And that's where it started. And I, I found a Nintendo, and um, I replaced some of the parts inside so it would work. And then um, I just started buying up the games, buying up the games. And then a year or two had gone by, and I thought, um, you know, maybe I should buy all of the Nintendo games. And that is still kind of my current goal. So all of the Nintendo Entertainment System games... 
So I've got about 320 now. I got about 400 more to go. I know this is this this is a great start to the podcast because this is kind of the saddest thing about me <laughs> is this bizarre hobby that I have. I might have I might, I might have to lay down like a bed of sad piano music throughout this whole section. <laughs> um. Like a beautiful mind, so like that's kind of what this is right now. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, are you are you mourning the passage of time? Is this? I mean, this, this is an exercise in nostalgia. So, like, you know, and if there is some sort of sadness yeah. underlying it, is there some sort of like you know loss of youth thing happening where you're trying to you know kind of hang on somehow? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's part of it for me, and I get no enjoyment out of very modern games. Uh, I, they're too complicated. I, I get lost really easily in the games. There's all these buttons and. I enjoy kind of the simplicity of just two buttons, you know, left to right. And I think part of it is just reliving my childhood and kind of reliving those same experiences again and again and again. And it goes along with a lot of my hobbies. Like, uh, you know, I love comic books and um, kind of follow the same sports teams I've always been following. And it's just kind of, you know, reconsuming everything you liked as a kid. I don't know if that's just me, but I mean, do you... Do you have anything like this? Do you do you no, play video games at all? Or no, did you? but it's making me it's making me want to though because I did play Nintendo as a kid and I, I haven't played video games at all practically since I was in high school. Like that was basically mm-hmm. the end of it for me. And I, I played Nintendo. I played like Super Mario Brothers, Tech Mobile. Uh, oh yeah. I'm trying to remember the other games, but I mean that was that was it. And I remember spending hours and hours and hours doing that uh, in my basement, you know, in Indiana when I was a kid. But I just I. I lost it, and it's it's sort of like television. You know, series television for me has been hard to keep up with in my adult life, just because I'm busy doing so many yeah. other things. But like when I was a kid, I would watch series television. I would get into sitcoms, and I would watch every week. And I, you know, all those kinds of like experiences for me, um, you know, they have kind of like an uh, a nostalgic tinge to them now because it's just a different phase of my life. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um where you have so much more time when you're a kid and you can just kind of relax and play through the game. And even now, I mean, most of these games, I'll play for five minutes. It's not like I'm sitting here playing for hours on end. Um, I mean, most of them aren't really fun. Past five minutes is what you discover. What, uh, uh, what, what so are you playing? What are you playing? What games are you playing? You know, literally what you just said, Tech Mobile, Mario Brothers, Metroid, kind of all the, the games we kind of grew up playing, Punch-Out!, um, oh, yeah. you know, you punch out that, that's still fun. That still holds up. Um, I actually, I did this weird thing for the, no- I, I know nothing about book promotion at all. So all my stabs at book promotion are kind of the, the worst things manageable, like just tweeting something and just saying, Hey, you should buy my book if you like, uh, Nintendo. <laughs> um, and I did this, which, yeah, no one wants to buy it then. Uh, but then I did this book promotion thing where I just, um, live streamed myself playing Nintendo for five hours. And then, you know, about hour four, I just thought, like, yep, this is probably the uh, the low point of your life right here is playing <laughs> Nintendo live on the internet for strangers, like a monkey or something. Hey, so. you know what? I've heard I've heard of worse things. I've heard of worse things people do for book promotion. Like what? I don't know. It just seems like at least that's creative and fun, and at least you were, you know, having some sort of laugh when you were doing it, you know. But so much of it can seem tedious and and. Uh, Boring. I don't know. You're playing video, oh, yeah. playing, playing video games on live stream. No one's ever done that before. You're breaking new ground. You're an innovator. It's it's everything I dreamed of when I when I wanted to become a writer was to be the first one to live stream themselves <laughs> playing um, Bible adventures on Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so where do you live? Where are you 
in the country? Uh, I actually, I just moved to Indianapolis. I want to ask you where you're from in Indiana, and I never lived in Indiana before, so this is kind of a totally new experience for me. No shit. I went to uh, junior high and high school in Carmel, which is north of the city. Oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, I'm up in Broad Ripple, so not uh-huh. far from there at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what brought you to Indianapolis? I got a job uh, at the University of Indianapolis, so I'm teaching English classes there. Oh, like at IUPUI, or is it the University of Indianapolis? That's his own thing. It's the university, so they used to go by U of I. It was kind of the old nickname, and now it's UND, uh-huh. um, but down in Beach Grove. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's changed so much. Like, I haven't lived there since 1993, so it's been 20, mm-hmm. 20 years, which is sort of shocking to even think about, but... Um, you know, it's it's I, my sister still lives back there, and so I go back to visit, and um, you know, it's it's just grown up and changed so much even since you know since I lived there. But it's not a bad spot. It's just gotten. And did you read? I don't know if you read this in like Forbes magazine or I forget what magazine does it, but uh, it just got voted like the number one place in the country to live, which seems you know when, wow when you, when you factor crazy. in when you factor in all the different things like cost of living and you know education and blah blah blah. But yeah, um, so do you like it? Yeah, I really love it a lot. Um, I mean, my favorite part about it is every everybody I've met here so far, and I've only been here since about the end of August, is um, everybody's been just really positive and really upbeat and just acknowledges that, you know, there, there's things in the community that aren't amazing right this second, but everybody is really cognizant of that and wants to go out and, and fix things. So there's lots of reading series here, and um, this thing called Indie Reads that I really like where they it's an adult literacy program. And in their own bookstore, and all the profits go towards adult literacy in Indianapolis. And there's just tons of stuff like that. It's really impressive to me and kind of heartwarming, but in the in the best possible way, not like a corny way. Yeah. So I've been really enjoying it so far. Wow. And so do you, have you ever been to the Vonnegut Museum downtown in Indianapolis? I have not. That's where I know I have to go. There's There's a bunch of things I know I still have to do, and... The list just keeps growing, but that's one absolutely I need to go to. Is yeah. it good? No, no, I, I haven't gone either. I was like, I, I was in uh, Indiana, I guess, back in August for my sister's birthday, and I just didn't have time. You know, I was too busy like visiting, and doing family stuff, and I didn't get a chance to get down there. But um, you know, I know that's downtown for as far as the literary scene goes, and then you know everything else would be news to me just because I wasn't really engaged back when I was seventeen years old. Um, and yeah, there. but. Um, so anyhow, where, where are you from originally? If you, if you moved to Indiana, where, where'd you come from? I'm originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, but I was coming from Pittsburgh where I've lived the last uh, five years before this. Okay. So Scranton, Pennsylvania, is that home of Joe Biden? <laughs> is that right? Yes. Home of Joe Biden. It's hard to grab a Scranton. We got Joe Biden, we got coal and we have the office. Those are the only three things that we have produced in a hundred years. Oh my God. So what was childhood like there? Um, we know you were play- we know, we know you were playing video games. You were playing lots of video games. I was playing games. a lot of Nintendo. I was yeah. playing a lot of Nintendo. Um, it's a very traditional uh, kind of small city. You know, it's really fallen on hard times um, post-World War II. So, thing, you know, things haven't really been great since then. So, uh, you, you know, it's, it's kind of everybody's kind of in a similar situation. So we're really really working class and and you know I, I still love all that stuff like my dad ran a body shop and that's where i spent just a ton of time as a kid just in the body shop and doing stuff like that i went to catholic school so it is really kind of all the stereotypes you can think of of a working class place it's all of those things i'm italian so it, it was just just all these 
stereotypes throughout the whole town. You speak Ita- you speak Italian? Like are you ethnically Italian, or are you just Italian, like American? Italian? I'm just yeah, I, I'm American Italian. I can't speak any. I'm a total fake Italian. So yeah, my too. family, my family thinks they're real Italian. So you know, it's like the the shirts are undone with the cross and the and the chest <laughs> hair, and it's really amazing. But I can't do any of that. I look ridiculous. So yeah, I'm you're not... Italian too. Or are you are you like fake, or are you like the good Italian? No, I'm fake. I mean, I, my grandfather, uh, like I'm not a hundred percent or anything, you know. But my last name is Sicilian. And, uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't identify. I mean, if I had to, if I have to identify ethnically, because really I'm just a mutt and I'm an American and I have yeah. no church and like, you know, but I was raised Catholic, but I don't identify with much of anything. I just feel like some sort of like, you know, wandering alien or something. But, uh, if, yeah. I, if I have to identify, I do identify with my Italian roots because it's my last name. And also because my grandfather, uh, was, you know, there was a strong sense of pride and that some sort of connection still, like generationally speaking. And so I remember seeing that as a kid and like, you know, so like I cheer for Italy in the World Cup a little bit, you know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. That's, that's like all we have really is, uh, is cheering for Italy. <laughs> and I make a lot of Italian food. Do you do that? Do you make, like, that's probably the only the biggest thing is I make a lot of Italian food. Do yeah. Do? Yeah. I love Italian. I mean, I, I, I love Italian food. Like I have a special affection for it. I'm not a, I'm not a great cook. Yeah. Like I can make pasta. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to overstate my talents here. It's like I can boil water and drop some, you know, noodles into it. But, um, so anyhow, so you grew up in Scranton. You had uh, a father who was a, who ran his own auto body shop. Yeah, that's what he did. He just um, he just sold his body shop um, actually like a month ago. So now he's painting tanks for the military, uh, which is totally awesome. I was able to go to the, the base, and it was one of the coolest moments ever. Just kind of take a tour with him and see what he was doing and to see what they're doing out there because it's something I, I never thought about like who's the guy who paints all that stuff um well it's my dad and it's a you know really interesting job and you know so that's what he does now but um when all when i was growing up he was uh son body guy so fixing cars that kind of stuff and that's where i spent most of my time as a kid like every saturday every day after school all the summers uh so that was pretty much it and so did you did you learn how to like work on cars and stuff can you fix your own car <laughs> Oh hell no! Like even even now, I, I can't tell you to do anything. It, it's kind of hilarious when I tell people that, and then they they try and ask you some question about some really simple thing like uh, how do you change a tire, and I just kind of stare at them. Um, so <laughs> so you blink a lot, like I don't know. Uh, I've seen him do it. Uh, he he went out of his way to show me nothing, so that I would not work there. So I I can t- I probably know less average person about. Cars. You know, that's interesting. That's interesting. It sort of reminds me of like uh, my dad and even, even my grandfather. Like they didn't speak Italian even though they could because they didn't want my dad to know it. I mean it's, it's not exactly the same but it's oh, sort of wow. similar. They, didn't, they wanted like integration. Yeah. It's like they have this thing and now I'm sort of pissed off because it's like I want to learn. You know, I wish I grew up speaking it so that I could be fluent but it sort of got cut off you know, or something. Yeah, I totally think you're right where – that he knew really early on. He didn't want me working with my hands or doing anything like he does, and he didn't want me staying in Scranton. So they pushed me so far in the opposite direction that I know I know pretty much nothing. And you know, I, I left as soon as I was eighteen, and really haven't gone back except for holidays or you know summers every once in a while or something like that. So you went from there to Pittsburgh. I went for, I went to college at a really small school in Central PA uh, called Susquehanna University. So it's it's kind of near Penn State or Bucknell, 
you know, those kind of like middle of nowhere Pennsylvania colleges. It's, it's out that way. Okay. And what was your experience there? Like, were you, were you right away on the track to becoming a writer or was it like a little bit more circuitous than that? Yeah, I, uh, I majored in creative writing. So, you know, as soon as I arrived, that was my declared major and started taking classes immediately. So it was pretty much what I wanted to do um, even before I got there. Uh, I actually I went to, th- this is how big of a nerd I was. I mean, obviously I am based on the earlier part about the 12 main video game systems hooked up. But when I was in high school, I saved up money for my job at KB Toys. Wow, this is getting nerdier by the second. Like every, everything I said, every phrase is worse than the last. Uh, I saved up money to go to a creative writing summer camp at Susquehanna. So that's kind of what sold me on the school. I went to the camp and I met the teachers and it was um, these great writers, Tom Bailey and Gary Fink, and, and um, they taught at the camp. And it was really cool. And, uh, you know, they were the professors I had for all four years. You're still in touch with them now and it, it was just a great environment really supportive so okay so you're in high school you're saving up yeah. you're working at kb toys <laughs> yeah it's, it's and, i know it's very sad and uh <laughs> and you are saving money you have you you've come up with this on your own no one pointed this camp out to you you sought this out somehow you you discovered it my, well my my high school teacher gave me the flyer Okay. So uh, she gives me the flyer, and then I really want to go. My parents agreed to go half on it, so I just need to come up with the other half. So I can't, I can't take all the credit for this. Right, right. Okay, so then uh, what kind of – I mean, like, give us a picture of what you were like in high school. Like, where, where were you like – what were you like socially? Uh, were you wearing, oh, my God. Were you wearing the glasses? Was it like a full geek situation or what – you know? Uh, I was a total clusterfuck in high school. Um, I, I had like um, – gelled up hair like it was gelled like straight like the flip like do you remember the flip in the late 90s um i had that and then i like um uh i had it i had like blonde tits like i thought that was cool i had like blonde tits in my my hair i thought like yeah this is going to be really cool like i'll get blonde tips and then frosted tips that's what they're called so i had some frosted tips i had like big dorky huge glasses um, I had a wallet chain because I, I thought that was really awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I pretty much just listened to Weezer and that was it. Um, and, you know, I didn't drink. I was really, you know, which is basically I'm really opposite now. But back then um, I was straight edge and I identified as straight edge. Just, this is getting worse and worse and worse. But, uh, yeah, so I didn't really drink or do anything fun. So I pretty much just drove around and um, listened to Weezer and hung out in the mall. It was pretty much the worst. I was pretty much the worst at high school. No, but you know what? That sounds like not dissimilar. I mean, I drank in high school, but that sounds not dissimilar from my high school life. You know, just like going to the mall, driving around. I mean, I was in Indian, you know, in Indianapolis, yeah. so there wasn't a ton going on. But uh, you know, you just—I mean, it's easy, I guess. I think everybody feels like their their high school years were somewhat misguided. I don't, I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody who felt like they had it all locked down in high school. Though I do sometimes joke and say that I peaked in eighth grade. Because I just remember, oh, how so? I don't know. I just remember that being like such a great year. Like it was fun. I felt like I had a good time. I felt like it like meshed well. Whatever was happening that year, you know, in in in, in totality, you know, not only socially but like physically, whatever it was, like in totality, I felt like that year and the events of that year meshed well with the essence of who I am. <laughs> I don't know. And, and you know, I could be totally mistaken, but I just rem- I just remember it really fondly. I remember it being a great year. I mean, that's kind of amazing. That's great, though, that you have such kind of a positive 
eighth grade memory. I mean, that's great. Yeah, but it was just that one year, you know. <laughs> and and so like the, the joke is that it's been all downhill ever since. But um, yeah, you know the 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 thing too that interests me is about. Uh, or I guess I want to ask you about it. It's like you went to Catholic school and I was raised Catholic yes. and I understand like the psychodynamics of what it, what it means to be raised Catholic. Um, and I'm wondering, I also remember, uh, I'm assuming we're at least somewhat close in age. How old are you? Yeah. 27. Okay. So we're, I mean, I'm, I'm about a decade older than you, but still like, yeah. you, you know what it was like to, to be raised in an environment where they're telling you not to do all this stuff from a young age. Don't drink, be good. Yes. So it's easy, I think, to re to respond to that, especially if you're a kid who, like me, uh, believed the elders in my life implicitly at a young age. Like I really believed them, and I wanted to do what they told me to do. You know, like I had, I guess, a respect for authority to a certain point. Um, and I remember being like in eighth or ninth grade, and being very much like, "I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do any of this stuff." And then when I got into, uh, you know, later years in high school and I started to sort of experiment a little bit, I started to realize that this was, uh, that this was not all bad, you know, <laughs> like, and that really messed me up. I wish I would have gotten better and more honest information about that stuff. And, you know, I know that it's complicated, but when I look back on it, I personally would have responded so much better if somebody would have just sat me down and gone through each of the different substances and just laid it down for me, honestly. Like, do you ever feel like that? Oh, so much. I agree with everything you said where I was exactly like that, where I bought everything they told me, hook, line, and sinker. I knew every aspect of kind of Catholic dogma. I totally bought into it. I remember my parents, they weren't very religious. And so it's weird why I even went to a Catholic school. And we're still not really sure. This is a very kind of murky family history. But I remember where they, they weren't going to church, and we had to drive to church. And when I was a kid, I would just sit and just glare at them right before church time. It's just like, we need to go to church. We need to go to church. And, and they wouldn't go. And I'd be the one getting really frustrated about it. Um, but then, you know, you, you hit high school and then, and then especially for me, college. And I just went completely in the opposite direction. We're too far where if someone had just, like you said, just been honest to me about all this stuff. I probably wouldn't have partied the way I did where I remember the, the first time I really got drunk, I, I had no idea how liquor worked, and I thought it was similar to beer, so I just immediately <laughs> pounded like eight shots within oh, a 15-minute span. Oh, God. And I remember I, I was almost passed out in the street, and uh, my friends pulled me out of the street, luckily, but then they also they dragged me to a party, like halfway across campus onto an island, because we were, we were right near a river. And they bring me to this island, and I can't even stand, I can't talk, and they just laid me on a couch, I remember waking up the next day and just thinking, like, yeah, I probably could have actually died. Um, if, some, if some nun had just been honest about, like, hey, this is alcohol, this is how it works, right. I probably wouldn't have gone so far in the deep other direction where it's like, let's drink every single night uh, and see how that goes. Well, that's the thing, too, is that, like, A, you have uh, no information, and then, B, if you do have information, it can be false or misleading information where they give yeah. you, like, a, you know, this blanket statement equating all drugs across the spectrum and saying that they're all the same and yep. you know that what i think that actually does more harm than good because then you have uh people going you know getting into this stuff not knowing what they're dealing with or you know they're they're testing the waters and realizing they've been lied to and that was sort of the case with me and then it was like well i'm i'm not going to believe a damn thing they tell me i'm going to go try this stuff for myself and you know i don't know it's a it's a it's an interesting issue and it's one that for whatever reason i find myself very uh, like rec recurring, recurrently or recurringly obsessed with because 
um, uh, I guess I don't know. I see it all around me, the culture. I think that uh, it could be handled so much better. And I think that it's also a, a, a subject that tends to be treated in a black and white manner when it is entirely gray to me. That's what I think. No, I think you're exactly right. And it's something I'm still obsessed with too, where I teach comp classes as well as creative writing. And that's kind of the whole last project for some of my students is um, they have to write an educational autobiography and kind of parlay that into an argument. And that's what we spend pretty much a month talking about. It's like, what didn't they tell you in high school? What did they totally misguide you on? Like how have we failed you? And I'm putting me in there. Um, cause I do feel like so, so many things kind of fall through the cracks and, and we are doing a disservice to students sometimes and it's the, the information we give them. And yeah, I agree. Well, yeah. And it's easy to underestimate the intelligence of young people, I think. And I think also, yeah. um, you know, there are so many big picture things that don't get touched upon in high school or in college, you know, and, and I'm interested to know when you, when you have your students write these educational autobiographies, are there any like common themes that you see recurring in, you know, uh, from, from student to student, or what are some of the more striking things you've read over the years? I mean, the, the biggest ones I've seen, like the things that reoccur the most are kind of just utter frustration with the no child left behind. And even if they don't know that that's what it is, they're frustrated at the amount of standardized tests. And they usually do, you know, I make them do research and they kind of figure out like where this came from and how this happened. And then that's really the biggest thing. It's like, the standardized test, teaching towards the test, how they're not really learning. They're not, they're not absorbing information. They're gaining test strategies, which aren't, obviously aren't practical in real life, and they don't really think about it until they're deep into college and suddenly realizing that some of this stuff is just bogus and they don't remember anything that they learned. Um, but that's the biggest one. And then also, you know, lots of students who have come from just really terrible school systems and suddenly, you know, now that they're in a college environment and everybody's come from a different background, they, they're suddenly realizing the kind of class differences that exist. Those are the two big ones that I usually see. Ugh. Yeah. Like that's the thing too. Like I didn't really yeah. have like, then tell me, tell me about this because I came up in a middle-class environment. Um, you know, that was the way I guess that, I guess Carmel was sort of like one of those like McMansion-y suburbs. You yeah. Know? I guess it, people would call it upper middle class, but I had a very, you know, uh, middle-class upbringing and there was a you know back when i lived there there was like a pig farm next to my neighborhood and it smelled like pig shit you know like it wasn't like we were living in some sort of gated community or something but um yeah i didn't have any sense even though i was surrounded and i had a lot i had some friends whose parents were very well off you know in high school and there was some of that you know they're like the sons and daughters of doctors or businessmen or whatever it was and um but yet you know because of the midwest i think in particular you know there is sort of like a no bullshit attitude that I like there. And there's not much attention paid to class distinction, especially when you compare it to a place like New York or Los Angeles or, you know, some of these other cities. But, um, you know, there's a greatness. That's one of the great things I think, um, about the Midwest is just the kind of, uh, you know, down homeness that there is to the people, but it never even really crossed my mind. I never cared about it. I never thought about it and it didn't really become any kind of issue in my mind or in my life until I got to college. And I'm, I'm interested in knowing if, like, when you were gr growing up in Scranton, did you have a, any kind of awareness of that, or was it something that came to you later, or, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think we had really similar kind of stories where, in, in Scranton, I had no clue. I had absolutely no clue at all that we were working class and that my parents were struggling to get by, because everybody's parents were struggling to get by, and everybody 
had the same kind of upbringing I had had for the most part. And the people I thought were rich when I was in high school, um, I remember he's, he's still one of my really good friends, and he, he had a trampoline and a, uh, <laughs> an outdoor pool. That's literally what I thought. I'm like, oh, he's rich because they have a rec room. Was that it, was my idea of what rich people were. Um, was it a, was it you know, was it an above ground pool or was it in the ground? Was it actually no? It was it was in ground. It was an in ground pool. It was a very nice pool, and it's a very nice middle class neighborhood. But I don't think he's he's not rich or anything like that. I don't think he would claim to be. Yeah. I was just an idiot, and then I went to college. Um, the college I went to was really expensive, and I got in just from scholarships. And I was just really lucky and got a good deal. Um, it was the only way I could afford to go. And I'll be paying debt off from college until I think the letter, you know, you get these letters to tell you when you're going to be done. And I think the most recent one said like 2040. So uh, the joke's on them because I'm sure we'll all be dead by that point. Um, but, <laughs> right. but, but anyway, like I got there and that's when I realized when it, when it started dying on me immediately, like um, I had no clue what wealth was. And uh, there was this whole other world out there that was completely alien to my experience. Did it make you feel um, insecure? I mean, did you have any kind of like reckoning with yourself or, you, you know, do you have any kind of class anxiety issues when you were hanging around with these, you know, privileged sons and daughters or whatever? It wasn't so bad in college because I was still really oblivious. Like I was definitely a very oblivious teenager. Um, and it was, it, it really hit me in grad school. I went to grad school at, um, university of Pittsburgh. And that's when, that's the first time when I really started to feel class shame all the time. Um, and just class anxiety. Um, that's when it kind of hit full on. And then I took a bunch of working class classes there at Pitt. And it kind of. What do you mean? Me. They actually, in, in their graduate program, you know, you have to take a lot of lit classes. I went, I got an MFA in creative writing, but you had to take a bunch of lit classes too. And um, I took all these working class studies classes where. You talk about like working class books and working class authors and things like that. And that's when I really started to realize that people in the class were talking about working class people as some type of specimen that they might encounter in, you know, like, um, like in field work. And I was coming to it as like, oh, yeah, that's my dad. That's me. That's everyone I've ever known. And it was really, and not everybody. I and mean, then that's a generalization, but, you know, a lot of people. And it was very terrifying. And that was kind of the moment of realization for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think like MFA programs, I think writing in general, this is something I haven't probably talked about on this show before. And it's surprising that I haven't, or maybe I haven't, I don't recall. But like when I look out at the field of people working in literary fiction or literary nonfiction, you know, it's not, it's not a huge amount of people, relatively speaking, you know, yeah. relative to the greater population. It's a small subset of the population that's really into this and really cares about it. And I think that if you were to, you know, I'm sort of guesstimating because you can't really know unless you dig into it and actually get the information. But it seems pretty likely to me that an overwhelming majority of people who are doing this are coming from uh, backgrounds of privilege. You know, I think that that's probably the case. I wouldn't know what number, but I mean, don't you get that sense that this is sort of a game that's reserved for people who are lucky enough to get the right education and go to the right schools and have enough uh, familial support or whatever it was to to go through the hoops and to, or to even consider this as like a, a practical uh, possibility. Yeah, I think so, so many things just have to fall into place for this to even happen, you know, and I think that, you know, the deck is stacked against 
people from kind of harder backgrounds. I mean, I guess that's obvious, but um, yeah, I definitely think so. But I also think there are a lot of kind of writers who have come from work-class backgrounds who just have, are just motivated by this chip on their shoulder. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Scott McClanahan, I feel, has, has talked about this before, and um, there's, a, there's a great writer I like, uh, Kathy Day. She lives in Indiana, too, and she's always writing about these kind of things, even if they don't bubble to the surface in her fiction. Like, I don't write about class a ton, but I feel that it's always just under the surface of everything I'm writing. Um, But at least for the most part, I think definitely a lot of the readers, I think most of the readers are. I think the the vast majority of the readership has maybe come from a different class situation. Like, I know my dad isn't, I mean, he's reading my novel right now, and it's it's really stressful. Um, (laughs) I I know he's nothing but supportive. He's never been anything but so supportive of everything I do, but I've been more stressed about that than any other person reading it. But typically, he's not going to come home and read literary fiction to relax. If if he's going to read anything, it's really like... um, you know, like Dan Brown or, or, or something about like a, like a history book about a war or something like that. Right. He's not going to pick up a novel. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, no, and I think it's like, I think parents very, very rarely do parents truly get, well, let me, how, how do I phrase this? I think, I think parents often have a hard time understanding their children's art. And I don't think that that's necessarily because of some sort of deficient, well, do you know what I'm saying? I, I feel like that happened with my parents. Yeah. I feel like they wanted to like it. I feel like they've been nothing but supportive, but like repeatedly, uh, I talk to friends who write books and publish books, and their parents read it. And you know, very rarely do the parents like get angry, or you know, is, does some sort of rift develop because of the contents of the book? But I often hear that there was some sort of like less than ideal outcome to the read, or they just didn't feel like they got it, or their their mother was like, you know, why didn't you make the doctor a lawyer? Or, you know, why don't you write something funny? You know, like like those I, those kinds of critiques. Yeah, I have the opposite experience. I know that's what you just said is the experience of every writer I know, like every writer I've ever talked to. Uh, my my mom read it four times the book, and but she was an English major, so I think that you know, and she wanted to be a writer. So I think a lot of this is you know just so exciting for oh, her. Wow. Um, that's awesome. I, I know. Yeah, so it really worked out great for me. So right from an early age, I was really encouraged to read, and, and she never pushed me into writing. She never did. But she always encouraged me when I was interested in it. And she's just read the novel a ton. Even when it was in manuscripts form, she wanted to see it. And I showed it to her, I'm like, well, I don't know. And, and she, she's just been great. Um, and she's always, she's always on her Facebook, like, uh, mimicking my awful social kind of media promotion. And she's always, like, linking to reviews and writing reviews on Amazon and telling her friends to get the book. It's, it's really, she's been amazing. What's so. your mom's name? What's your mom's name? Uh, Kathy Payne. Okay, sure. so go out and uh, befriend Kathy Payne on Facebook, ladies and gentlemen, and let's uh, let's try to you know I th- she's basically functioning as your publicist, right? So if you want to find out what's happening with Sal's work, just befriend his mother. <laughs> she's got all the hottest Sal Payne news that you can find. She's posting she's posting pictures of herself reading the book. She's posting pictures of, of her of their dog reading the book. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, yeah, and she's got like the sickest live stream of you playing Mike Tyson's Punch Out. Right? <laughs> anyone has ever seen. And she probably could pull up video from, you know, 1991 of me playing Punch-Out <laughs> and then actually just put that on the internet, which would be great. Uh, well, that's awesome though, man. And I think that's, that's, uh, it's kind of a sweetheart of a story. Like when uh, a child gets to live out a parent's dream, like that's, I mean, I think a lot of times parents hold for their children, 
dreams that they might have had for themselves or, you know, but might never have had the courage to um, actually dream or might not have had ever had the opportunity to actualize in their own lives. That That's a pretty awesome. That must be an awesome feeling to get to do that and to have, I don't know, kind of have your mom have that experience through you. Yeah, it was really, it's been amazing. Um, and it was really overwhelming when I, when I finally saw the book and when, you know, I talked to her and she got to see the book and it was such just a feeling of like, you know, um, this wasn't just for me. I accomplished this for all of you guys. Um, I know not everybody gets to have that because of their families and fully understand their art or something like that. You know, so I'm very lucky. So are you like, are you like a, a hero back in Scranton? Like what's going on when you go back home? I don't know. I, we're going to find out. Um, the, you know, the book has parts set in Scranton, but just very few. But the, the narrator is very dismissive on Scranton and kind of a jerk. Um, so, you know, he makes fun of the high school I went to. Um, and I think he refers to people in Scranton as chocolatites. Like he's, he's kind of, he's a total dick and I'm kind of worried about what the response is going to be. The book's only been out for a couple weeks, so I haven't heard much from people back home, but I'm doing a reading there, um, next month. So we're, we're going to see, uh, I could get stoned <laughs> and they could be throwing tomatoes at me. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I, so far, everybody's, everybody's been incredibly nice about it and great. Um, but they haven't read the book, so we'll see what happens. Um, now, my mom, going back there, she claims that the book is much kinder on Scranton and that anyone who's from there understands that it sucks. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, you know, I think it's like the, I think it's more often than not the case that all of the things you think that people might find offensive or all of the characters based on real-life individuals, and, you know, usually the characters are amalgams, but there are elements of family members or elements of people you grew up with or elements of whoever it is. You know, you think that these things are going to wind up being offensive to people, and I know that sometimes that does happen, and people's feelings are hurt, and there are relationships shattered by fiction. But you know, I think the overwhelming majority of the time, people get it, and I think some people are, you know, people tend to even be flattered that they were somehow an inspiration for a work of art. I mean, that's my hope is that people from Scranton see that, I mean, or I hope they they think that you know that's the character's view and not my view, and that you know I'm trying to represent. I, the, the one thing that would really hurt me is if I misrepresented Scranton and made something that it wasn't and I misrepresented those people because I care so much about the people I grew up with um, and kind of that world, even if I'm not part of it. So, I mean, it, 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 I hope they think it's accurate. That's the thing kind of I worry about. Yeah. Well, and, but and it also, like, it seems like you might have that turf to yourself as a writer. You know, like, there can't be that many writers yeah. writing about Scranton, right? I mean, it's just me in the office, I think. I don't know of anything <laughs> else happening there. And, and the, the office in Scranton is a very the, – the way people view that show is very bizarre and kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of envy people. Like, this is going to sound strange perhaps, but, like, I envy people who and, – and I also think it's wise that if you're from a part of the country that might not necessarily get a lot of uh, television airtime. You know what I'm saying? Like everything is shot in Los Angeles yeah. where I'm at. So like, you know, but I feel like, you know, no place is more overplayed in the popular consciousness than Los Angeles and New York and all those kinds of places. And obviously there are a million books set in Brooklyn. But when you, you mentioned Scott McClanahan earlier, he just sort of like, oh, you know, he's from West Virginia and he owns that turf and he writes about it uh, really well and tells those stories. And I think that's I, not only do I think that's healthy for literature, um, I think it is cool (laughs) 
to you know just sort of embrace wherever oh, it, yeah. wherever it is you're from and don't try to you know I don't know contort yourself in, in an effort to try to write about places that you think people want to read about. I think any place is interesting if if the telling is done properly. You know. Oh yeah, you know you can tell a good story set anywhere, and I think too much of fiction feels like it's set in a vacuum. Um, you know, I always kind of gravitate more towards place-driven fiction. And, and someone like Scott, you know, you go to a reading with 12 readers, you ask anyone out there who they remember and what they remember, and it's Scott McClanahan, and it's, you know, kind of the hills of West Virginia, and you remember that right. um, based on what he does, you know. Right. So I have nothing but respect for him. I think he's just pretty yeah. amazing. Well, yeah, and he's got he's a good talker. He's got that accent. I mean, I've had him on the show. Yeah. He's, he's really fun to speak with. So, And, I've, I've, and yeah. I have not gotten a chance to see him read live, but... Um, he was here in Los Angeles not too terribly long ago, and I couldn't make it over there, but I have uh, friends who were there and said the same thing. They said he was a, a superb uh, reader. Yeah, it, it's almost kind of like he does – it's almost like a pastor or something like that. Like I'm selling it really short right now, but it's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about you? Or like, are you or Do you have any kind of stage fright, or is this something that you f- feel that you can excel at going up and reading in front of people? I used to be really bad at it. Um, I was just – I'm making my students read in front of um, their peers uh, in about two weeks, and um, I'm live streaming it on the Internet. So they're all really nervous and terrified, and I, I told them when I was in college, I had to introduce um, Andre DeBuse III, and I was sick with fear for about a month, and then the day came, and I, I puked everywhere beforehand. Like, it wasn't even – it wasn't in the toilet. It was just everywhere on every conceivable surface in the bathroom. It was just me puking. Um, so I used to get really, really nervous, and now not so much from teaching where I'm kind of like every day I have to go and talk in front of people. Right. Um, so I actually, it, it's funny, I feel almost more nervous with students when it's just like one-on-one, when I just have to talk to one of them, and I don't have that like shield of, well, I'm talking, and you're all you're all over there, and I'm all over here. Um, but, with, but with readings, no, I'm usually pretty good. I get I get nervous when the other readers are reading before me because then I kind of sink into my own thoughts of, you know, am I going to be terrible? Is everyone going to laugh me off the stage? Uh, I usually have, like, a kind of, like, Woody Allen-esque personality up on stage where I'm just kind of, like, you know, rambling and um, kind of, like, making awkward jokes that people kind of sometimes find endearing. So that's <laughs> kind of been my stage presence. But, you know, it's interesting when it comes to, like, the fear of public speaking. It's, it's like the most, I think it's the most common phobia there is. And, you know, and and then to become a teacher, like to have dealt with that and then to become a teacher, you obviously have to get up in front of people and you have to do it. But I have a friend who has the fear of public speaking and it's an intense fear uh, to the point where like we were at a wedding and it was for a close friend of ours. And we were essentially like the best men. You know, we were the groomsmen and it was expected that we were going to make some sort of toast. And we were in a restaurant. It was crowded. And we, we, we were like, you know, you got to do this, man. You know, you got to say something. And, and he was so, he got angry. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like he was just, oh, no. it was like anger and like, I'm going to fucking leave if you make me do this. And he was like standing up and like threatening to run out of the room. It was like that level of disc- of like discomfort. Um, and yet, uh, he's a waiter and he's waited tables for years in like really high end restaurants wow. where he's got to stand up in front of people and obviously like remember orders and do all this stuff. So like. It's the controlled environment. I guess you can learn how to function with it inside of a certain context, but once you leave that context and it's you know free form or whatever, it gets a little bit more difficult. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's all about the context. Because Ray was your friend, he's the waiter. You know, he, they're not judging him. He knows they're not judging what he's saying or anything like that when he when he's waiting tables, and it really comes down to the food or the experience or whatever. And I kind of feel when I'm up in the classroom, you know, I have the power because I'm the one who eventually gets to grade them anyway. So just knowing that kind of makes me feel at ease. Like eventually it comes down to me. Like there's, there's nothing they can do to me. You know, they can't just, they can't, they won't start laughing at me because they know I can grade them. So, you know, maybe that's a, a bizarre way to look at it, but yeah, anyway. especially when I started teaching, I was so, I kind of had the same reaction. The month before I, I taught for the first time, I was just sick with fear. I'd wake up in the middle of the night just sweating. Just like, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to get in front of these kids to say something and pretend I know what I'm talking about. Um, so luckily I don't do that anymore. You got over it. And, you know, practice makes perfect too. You get more comfortable as you go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even like, uh, shit, I mean, just sitting here talking into this microphone, I get, uh, I get anxious and it's just me in a room, <laughs> you know, like doing the monologues and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you just have to practice it, I guess. But, um, as far as the teaching goes, like, was that something that as a result of going to this like summer camp and going through your, your, uh, two-tiered education and creative writing, were you thinking all the way along that you were on this track to become a teacher or was it something that you sort of fell into as you realized I have to find income in order to supplement my writing habit? It, it was, it never felt like a real possibility for me. Um, not when I was in college, not for most of when I was in grad school. I didn't teach when I was in grad school. I tutored um, all the student athletes. So that was my job. So it was, it was, it was teaching, but it was very different. You know, you just one-on-one, it was very different. You work with one student at a time and, you know, it's somebody else's assignments. Uh, and I loved it. I really loved that job. And um, because of that, I thought, well, maybe I, I can give it a try. So when I finished grad school, I, um, I adjuncted for a while. And almost immediately, I just loved everything about it. Um, and, and I think that's what you know, so many writers get sucked into teaching and especially adjuncting, which pays horrible. Yeah, I mean, the pay is unbelievably horrible. You'd make way more money working at Target. And, and I did. I worked retail for eight years. I, I probably definitely made more money doing that. Um, where did so you, where, where did you, wait, where did you work retail? Uh, at Target. Um, oh, you did work at Target. Okay. I didn't know. About it. Oh, yeah. Target, KB Toys. Uh, I think that was it. So I think I did, I think I did each for four years around there. Yeah. Um, but with, with teaching, if you really love it, you, you know, those are the people who should teach if you got your MFA. I think too many people get sucked into it. Um, but I really, really did love it. And then after that kind of first year, I started to try and, you know, get all my shit together so I could teach somewhere full time and, you know, survive off of a real income and not have to spend summers, you know, using my credit card and just, again, waking up in the middle of the night sweating. What am I going to do? Yeah. Um, so. And so how did you land the thing in Indianapolis? I just went on the job market, you know. I think everybody says how awful the job market is, and, you know, it really is terrible unless you're willing to move anywhere. So I just applied to pretty much every fiction job that I seemed remotely qualified for and even a bunch that I didn't. Um, and, you know, I just interviewed for the job. You know, they, I did a phone interview. I came out here. I really meshed well with what the faculty wants to do. And, you know, they, they liked all my weird shit because when I interviewed, I talked about, like, Richard Nixon and Kanye and comic books, and they were all into that. So I kind of just have been very lucky throughout my life, and I guess that was another big thing where they're like, yeah, we definitely need somebody who can teach comic books. So I'm teaching a comic book class next semester. 
Um, and what about Richard Nixon? What's what, how did Richard Nixon come up? I write about Richard Nixon and Kanye West more than any writer should or be allowed to. Um, <laughs> so disc- explain, so this. I don't know, I just, explain this. Why, why, why these? Why Richard Nixon and Kanye West? What's the obsession? I think when, when Nixon was my best friend from college turned me on to Nixon because he's a huge Nixon acolyte, which sounds really bizarre. Um, but he was really obsessed with Nixon when we were in college and still is. And he had like framed pictures of Nixon and we would watch uh, the Oliver Stone Nixon movie and he would be drinking Black Label, which is Nixon's whiskey. And he would buy me Nixon autobiographies, which Nixon's written 14 books and they're all kind of the most paranoid, insane shit you've ever read. And it's amazing. Um, Wait, wait, and if you're just if you're, <laughs> Richard Nixon wrote 14 books. Yeah, you, it's seven or it's a high number. Yeah. it might not be 14, but it's high. Yeah, and they're all crazy. They're all batshit crazy. And the best one is if you're only going to read one book written by Richard Nixon, you, which you probably should, you should probably only read one. Uh, but if you are, you should get no more Vietnams. And when you think, oh, it's the 80s, he's going to apologize. Here we go. And he just blames the entire war on his inability to bomb this one road that he wanted to bomb, that Congress wouldn't let him bomb. And then he blames the Ewoks in one of the most insane paragraphs I've ever seen where, you know, the, the Ewoks from Return of the Jedi, it's like 10 years after the Vietnam War ended, and he's just blaming the fucking Ewoks. And it's just amazing. So I think <laughs> Nixon is like this crazy Shakespearean figure for me, just totally paranoid and just conflicted and... Yeah. Just all these kind of class. It's all his class issues because everything for him comes back to he wasn't good enough because he went to um, you know, Whittier College or whatever it was, and and you are Belinda, and he was never he was never seen as as good as Kennedy or any of those people. So he just rage fucked them for so you know his presidency, and it's just totally crazy. Um, which is kind of probably why I keep going back to Nixon. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No. I and I like. Did you? What was the movie that Ron Howard did? Where it was like the, the it was Frost Nixon. He did Frost. Oh, Nixon. Frost. I teach that all the time. I make students watch that, and <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, I thought that was a really. I th- and, and you know, the thing too about it is that Nixon, for all of his class uh, anxiety and all of that kind of like seething anger underneath, um, you know, his insecurity, um, he was also a brilliant guy. You know, in his own way, he was a brilliant yeah. operator. Obviously, you know, he was what vice president and president, and had this insane comeback. And he knew how to pull the levers of power, at least for a while. And uh, I don't know. I thought that movie captured it to a, a certain extent, like the way that he could manipulate and the way that he had that kind of devilish charm. Yeah, he has. The, he he is kind of has this like evil genius capacity within him, um, and maybe he was never fully exploited because he went into the presidency. I, I often wonder if he, if he had been a writer or, or like a philosopher, something like that, what he would have produced. Um, so the president, politics seems like the absolute worst field for him to go into because he hates people. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of people. I mean, it's like if you think about like I, I've coming just coming out of this election season, you think about uh, the different personalities in politics, and you think about what it would take to actually be a good politician. Like, is there such a thing? Yeah. Because no matter what, if you get to a certain level, people, at least some people, are going to bitch and they're going to hate you, and they're going to think you're stupid, and they're going to think you're wrecking the country. And you know, then you start to then you know. Personally, I'm sitting here trying to parse it and trying to figure out who's right, uh, or at least who, who's closer to the truth. And it's like, what personality type is good for politics? Because if you look at a guy like Bill Clinton, 
He's like emotionally needy. He's obviously a natural born politician. He gravitates towards it. He's, he can sit in a room full of, you know, or he can stand around in a crowd for like eight hours without a glass of water and just talk. Um, and then you have Obama who's like, you know, reportedly more like, you know, introverted and quiet and like, you know, doesn't love people and he's not as emotionally needy. And it's like, part of me thinks I don't want an emotionally needy guy in the white house, but like, you know, you, you sort of get criticized for not being a backslapper. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's complicated as to like what kind of person it takes to actually be good at it. And if that's even possible. Yeah. It almost, you know, it almost feels like we need a total introverted pencil neck nerd in there, but you know, that's never going to win an election. You, you know, that's, I mean, we saw that in, this election. I mean, Obama did win, but you know, uh, so much of the attack is about his personality and and and, and a million other things. But well, and they, yeah, they, it's very well. There's, but, okay, so here's the thing: they're talking about how like he doesn't necessarily love politics, and like what I'm thinking is good. You know, like like you don't love the game. Like anyone who loves this yeah. game is is sick in the head. <laughs> you know, it's a fucked up game. So. I want somebody who's got some like you know ambivalence about actually playing it, and somebody who finds, um, you know, spending their you know their cocktail hour with a bunch of politicians to be less than desirable. You know, like I, I find that sort of appealing. That's probably the sane response. Who wants to hang around in a room full of these people? But um, you know, it's it's a weird game, and it's it's just fascinating to me that you have such a, a like a keen interest in Richard Nixon, and so. Um, I also want to ask, what's the deal with Kanye West then? Like, what, what, you know, what is that particular fascination? You know, I really think that he is an incredibly talented person. Um, and I think a lot, when people ask me about this, because I, I listen to a ton of rap music, which doesn't make any sense based on anything about me that I've said over the last 45 minutes or hour. <laughs> um, but I pretty much only listen to rap these days. And I think Kanye West is probably the best in the field. Um, and I just think he's, he's the perfect person for this generation where he's a total, just funhouse mirror image of our own narcissism and just all this insecurity and narcissism at the same time. Um, where Kanye West's great subject is Kanye West. You know, that's every album is about it. And it was really funny to me when his second to last album came out and it was right around the time of the financial crisis, the breakdown, when it first started in 2008. I had to get the wool after that. And um, people were criticizing the album because it didn't talk about any of the issues and it was, you know, materialistic. And that just seems insane to me because that's all he does. That's all he does is talk about himself. And, and that's such a reflection of, you know, people under 40 right now. Um, so I'm kind of obsessed with what his music means and what it says about us and, and him as kind of a figure he keeps working his way into my work. I actually, this is crazy, but I just edited an anthology called um, Hashtag Good Lit Swerve Autumn, uh, an anthology of independent literature about Kanye West. <laughs> I was just so, going to say, I was just going to say, are you, it sounds like you're, you're gearing for an academic study of this. Like, you know. I, I'm very interested. I'd love to. Yeah, if only there was, a, if only there was um, an, a Kanye West slash Richard Nixon field, because then I would really be the preeminent scholar. I, I was going to say you are the um, nation's preeminent Nixon West scholar. But you know, I, yeah, I, but... I, I, I can, I can, I can empathize because, like, I have a similar fascination 
I mean, like Nixon fascinates me, maybe not to the degree that he fascinates you, but uh, I definitely have a, a strong fascination with politics and like how, you know, political power works in this country and anywhere generally. But I'm also uh, on the celebrity side of things. I have a similar sort of uh, obsession with Michael Jackson and like that whole narrative, like that whole narrative to me is yeah. just like epic and, and somehow representative, you know, and I think that's what it is, is that these people become so fascinating because you see in them a kind of, uh, you know, symbology. They're representative of the culture, you know, in ways large and small. And, you know, I look at Michael Jackson and like the, you know, the, and then I, I kind of see um, the culture of celebrity that he grew up in and that kind of grew up around him. And, you know, it's astonishing. The whole thing is just beyond belief. And I think, you know, I don't know if they're really, I don't think there really exists like a really, really good, insightful biography of him uh, i could be i could be wrong you know but it's a book that like i've told people and told myself in the past that i would love to write and i have no idea if that would ever come to fruition but you know maybe you've said the same thing about nixon and west i you know it, it's funny i i keep publishing you know i i think you should do a michael jackson kind of great american saga book because that's his whole family that's what it is so it's, it's a great american kind of saga story um so, one, I think you should definitely do that because I would read it. But for, for Kanye and Nixon, I keep putting them in really fictional situations. Um, and that's kind of been my interest in it. Is, like, I guess I kind of hinted at that earlier when I said, like, if Nixon had only been in some other type of field his whole life, he would have been so much more successful and revered. Um, so actually, that's a, I have a graphic novel coming out. And it's about Nixon. And it's total, totally genre-y. And it's not... It's not a genre through a literary fiction lens, which you see a lot, which I really like, but it's not that. It's just straight genre. And it's about Nixon as a secret spy, like beating the shit out of ninjas. Um, <laughs> and then that's, that's kind of what I'm interested in when it comes to Nixon. It's like, what if Nixon had a Tommy gun and had to, you know, shoot a bunch of robots? Like, that's that's more of my kind of pedestrian Nixon fictional fantasy, I guess. Well, but there is something cartoonish about these people. And I, you know, I don't know if it's because they're inherently cartoonish people or if it's because their public image has been, uh, mass produced to the point where they, you know what I'm saying? I think if you see somebody in the culture over and over again, uh, you know, eventually they become like a cartoon in your mind. I think, you know, it's hard for somebody who's famous, no matter how dignified they are to keep their dignity. Um, it seems to be, it sort of comes with the territory that you become a buffoon at a certain level of fame. But, uh, I think Nixon, you know, I think about like the Halloween mask for some reason. Um, yeah. and there's something cartoonish about his appearance and there's something cartoonish about the, the double peace signs over his head and, you know, all the, the voice affectations and everything. So, you know, yeah, and that's what he's been reduced to where, and in all those figures, like I asked my students before we watched, um, Frost Nixon, what do they know? And they know pretty much that. You know, he said, I'm not a crook, and he did the peace sign thing. And they know that he, some of them, like the nerdier ones, will know he's the president on Futurama. And then other than that, <laughs> they really don't know anything about Watergate or his presidency. Or It's very strange how he's just been reduced to kind of a, not even a sound bite, but almost like a Warhol kind of just, you know, um, final image, you know? Yeah, but see, this is the thing. I, this is another thing that I've argued and... Uh told myself because I feel like I'm deficient. Like this is one of, I I think this is part of my fascination with uh, politics and history is that I feel deficient in it. And I feel like anxious about the fact that I'm deficient in it. And when I hear those kinds of stories, um, you know, like my, uh, my hackles rise or I get nervous because it's like, we have to do a better job of teaching 
young people history. Like we have, like I feel like yeah. that's, I feel like that's like I, I think that it's not an exaggeration to say that the American population is really stupid broadly, um, or, or at least ignorant. Like I think people have you know good street sense, and I think they have native intelligence that could be cultivated. You know, I don't think they're inherently stupid, but I just think there's so much ignorance and lack of proper education. And it's like, if you don't know history, if you don't have a sense of where we were, I find, I think that's dangerous for a society. You know, I feel like that's bad. Well, you know, going back to that educational biography paper, the, the one that always comes up is history classes end at World War II, you know, and it's really disturbing that, you know, we stop at World War II in high school and grade school. And sometimes you get Vietnam, but you don't really get Vietnam. You get kind of the the high school version of it. So, I mean, just like, you know, with anything in history, but yeah, and you, you know, you have college graduates having kind of no idea about the cold war or any, anything like that, that kind of led to where we are now. Um, and it's even more disturbing, you know, college freshmen are 18 now and for them, nine 11. And we talked about this in class happened when they were, you know, like six. Jesus. And so they have, it's crazy. So they, I, I know every time I think about that, uh, it blows my mind. So they really have no conception of it. And for them, just, you know, America is always at war. That's the status quo they know, is America will always be at war. And what would be weird is if we did not have a war happening. And it's totally mind-blowing to think we have a generation now that is college-aged, and that's their existence and view of America. Well, but, you know, like, we, like what, since the 1940s, you know, or 1942, yeah. we've been at war essentially uh, continuously, except for like brief gaps. I mean, I don't know. I can't, I don't know the exact breakdown, but it's like maybe there was a short gap in between world war two and the Korean war. And then there was a gap in between Korea and Vietnam. But then, you know, you get to, it just seems like we've been, you know, we've had military action happening somewhere pretty much the whole time. (laughs) And the other thing that bums me out, like not to get too, um, off the rails into politics, but just like in terms of the, the machinery of our government and the way that it's supposed to work, like whatever happened to Congress voting on acts of war, like that doesn't even happen anymore. Yeah. The president just decides, you know, it's like, well, why aren't we slowing this down? And why aren't we putting this to a group vote instead of imbuing one person with all this power to make these decisions? Like I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. I'm reading, um, an Oppenheimer bio right now and I'm near the end. So it's kind of the, um, the early 50s when they're about to kind of fuck blacklist them forever. And um, just seeing kind of machinations that has to happen for them to get to the H-bomb in terms of the policy. Like, they, they have the technology to do it. And they just have to go through so many hoops over the span of years yeah. to get it approved. And it just seems like that doesn't exist in our time. Like, it's some type of dramatically different weapon that could change the shape of war existed. We would be you know, built in it immediately. <laughs> yeah. It's a, well, I imagine. There's just, yeah. yeah, there's money to be made and there's, you know, I don't know. It just seems like it's a, it's a messed up system, but, uh, on that note, <laughs> it's a, a nice, nice place. But I think we went Richard Nixon, Kanye West into Armageddon and then we'll close it out. <laughs> um, but no, it's been super fun talking with you, man. And I congratulate you on the book and uh, I wish you well uh, as you head back into Scranton, a conquering hero. I hope you don't get uh, pelted with uh, stones and fresh produce. <laughs> and, well, uh, we'll see. Thank you. Thank yeah, you so much. This yeah. is amazing. So. Yeah. Okay, man. We'll take it easy. And, uh, you know, if I'm in Indianapolis, next time I'll look you up. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Salvatore Payne. Go get his novel. It's called Last Call in the City of Bridges. It is out there now from Braddock Avenue Books. You can find him on the uh, internets at salvatore-payne.com. He's on the Facebook, and his Twitter handle is at Sal Payne. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go get the Other People app, the official app of this program. It is free. You download it to your phone or your iPad or whatever mobile device you happen to have. Uh, Did I mention that it's free? And then when you have it, all new episodes automatically appear in the app. They automatically upload or download or whatever. You don't have to do anything. There are all sorts of uh, bells and whistles and exciting functions included in the app. It is extremely convenient. It is extremely elegant. And it doesn't cost a dime. So please go get that. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, Christmas is uh, now just a couple of weeks away. And uh, hey, why not give the gift of literature? I have a new book out. I got to plug it. It's called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. I co-authored it with Justin Benton. It is a strange book. It is captivating. It is emotional. It just got a glowing review over at HTML Giant if you want to read that. Uh, I think you should consider it. I think you should consider getting it. I'm just going to come right out and say that. I think you should uh, embrace it. It is available in trade paperback and ebook editions. It is called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. Please remember that Sophocles' father manufactured swords for a living and that John Dos Passos died of congestive heart failure. Thanks for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for your emails and uh, all of your Facebook messages and tweets and so on. If you want to write to me and let me know what's on your mind, the address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. I will be back again soon. Uh, I think I'm going to go lie down. Perhaps I will do some meditation. Perhaps I will sit on the carpet and watch my thoughts. Or uh, perhaps I will sit on my thoughts and watch the carpet. Huh? What do you think about that?